This episode is sponsored by the ECMC Foundation, which supports building a post-secondary education system that works for all learners through its grant-making focus areas of college success and career readiness. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Key with IEG. I'm Paul Fain, a news editor at Inside Higher Ed and the podcast host. This show is focused on the pandemic and the recession and all the uncertainty this is causing for college students. In addition to those huge stories, we, like everyone else, have been focused on the unrest over police brutality and racism. This week, we talk about all three of those issues in an episode about college athletics. For the discussion, I was joined by Welch Suggs, an associate professor of journalism at the University of Georgia. Suggs is a former journalist who covered college sports for the Chronicle of Higher Education. He also worked as a university administrator and as an associate director for the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Big-time college football is starting up soon, really right now, and Suggs and I talked about what that means amid the current backdrop. We have football players who are coming back to campus right now, um, getting ready to start workouts next week. When our campus, even our administrators and essential workers, aren't coming back until June 15th. And so it does make me raise some questions about the value we're placing on the health of a lot of those athletes. And I think that's something that colleges and athletic directors and coaches need to be very transparent about, about what they're doing and how they're evaluating and mitigating risk for that population. We also talked about the growing number of team cuts by cash-strapped colleges that we're seeing around the country as well as efforts to diversify non-revenue athletics programs. Let's get right into it. Alrighty, I'm speaking with Welch Suggs. Good to see you virtually. Likewise, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, how about yourself? Yeah, doing okay, given these times. Yes, indeed. Um, so speaking of the times we live in, there's quite a bit of uncertainty in higher education. We had a Senate hearing yesterday about reopening campuses, but we're also past Memorial Day, and, and for a lot of people, college football's right around the corner. And that is up in the air right now, it appears. Is that your general read? I still think there are so many question marks out there, Paul. I mean, I can remember back in the mid-90s when we thought the BCS was a big deal and an existential question for college athletics. And that is nothing compared to what we're going through now. And there are still so many more question marks. We're starting to see players trickle back to campus. With that, we're seeing a few campuses where uh, football players are testing positive for COVID-19, and so that's going to create a lot of fits and starts for teams trying to come back, and it's just a real question about whether we're going to be able to make it back either you know, with full teams as of Labor Day or with full stands. I know there's a lot of debate about that going on right now, so yes, I think that there's still more question marks than there are periods at this point. And given that we're, what, two and a half months out from the start of the season, that seems a little concerning. Yes, indeed. And, and you know, I've, you know, our coverage at Inside Higher Ed has increasingly, to some extent, convinced me that some institutions may have the testing capacity to do what experts think is necessary to resume online, uh, in-person instruction. You know, I didn't think that three weeks ago, but it's it's starting to seem like there's some consensus there. But, you know, you mentioned that some players have already tested positive. I would assume it's very expensive, very difficult for a college football program to start right now uh, where we are in the in the pandemic. And when you get a positive test, I would imagine that that throws everything in, in array. Correct. It does. The NCA released guidelines for coming back to campuses and recommending what we've all heard that you should do is to make sure that you 
quarantine for 14 days um, if you're traveling from someplace else to quarantine for some period of time before you go into a building. But players are all over the place. As one of Oklahoma State's players went to a protest this week, as so many have, and tested positive after that. I will say that there's obviously a divide between the haves and the have-nots. And I'm at the University of Georgia, where our program has more money than God. And so and we also have a very good sports medicine staff. So they probably have a good process in place for testing everybody. But it's not going to be the same at all 2,500 colleges that have some kind of athletics this fall. So I think people are still very much on edge about what's going to happen next. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the divide there. There's a lot riding on big-time college football, including big TV deals and, and lots of financial uh, incentives. But I, I, it seems to me that we are seeing some slightly different messages from different programs right now about how optimistic they are for a, a full season. Uh, the SEC pretty early followed the NCAA's voluntary workout guidelines. I don't think we've seen anything from the Big Ten yet. Are you potentially thinking that we might have some major variability even among those big conferences? I think it's possible just in the same way we've seen variability among states. And unfortunately, a lot of that breaks down along political lines. But I am seeing some governors start to make some proclamations. I know yesterday the governor of Texas said that stadiums could reopen this fall at 50% capacity. I'm not sure if he set a date on that, but that could apply to both professional and college sports. Just today, the athletic quoted my president at the University of Georgia, Jerry Moorhead, as saying he was hoping for full stadiums this summer, but he was waiting for the public health experts to make a final decision. But I think this is going to break down in the way that we have seen that different parts of the country respond to this differently. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we see different conferences, different parts of the country respond to this in different ways when it comes to college sports. You know, it's hard to talk about anything these days without talking about the story, uh, the, the widespread unrest around police killings um, and racism. You know, when you think about the liability, the responsibility of institutions to preserve uh, the health of their students, that goes for football players, too. And it feels like the stakes are pretty high right now. It does. And it makes me, I guess, a little squeamish, I guess, as a very privileged white male faculty member. When we have football players who are coming back to campus right now, um, getting ready to start workouts next week, when our campus, even our administrators and essential workers aren't coming back until June 15th. And so it does make me raise some questions about the value we're placing on the health of a lot of those athletes. And I think that's something that colleges and athletic directors and coaches need to be very transparent about, about what they're doing and how they're evaluating and mitigating risk for that population. We already know that African-Americans are at a higher risk for more severe cases of the coronavirus based on what we've seen so far. So this does have me worried about what's going to happen as we progress through the summer. Again, an institution like Georgia, others in the big power five, probably best able from a, a capacity, a financial, just a, a health, the health centers that they have, the experts they have working with them to do a better job than those that don't have uh, those sort of resources. And in the last few weeks, we've seen quite a few uh, athletics programs uh, fold, you know, c cutting teams, not, not football yet, I don't believe, maybe, maybe one actually. But generally, you're seeing more of the Olympic sports at a couple institutions. I mean, how, how widespread is that? And how worried are you about uh, closures becoming pretty, pretty broad? 
Well, I mean, it seems like, Paul, we've got sort of three massive forces that are all sort of bearing down on education and society, frankly, in different ways. But you've got the COVID-19 pandemic and the public health concerns going on there. You have got the budget situation that many colleges are going to be facing, both in terms of pressure on state budgets, as well as on tuition dollars and whether people are coming back to campus. And then, of course, in the last week, we've seen the huge pressure to think about race relations and disparate policing and other ways in which African-Americans have been disadvantaged. It's been brought into such sharp relief. And so we're all struggling and muddling through this. And so with sports and sport cuts, I feel like all of those issues are kind of coming in together and being shaped in different ways. There's been a bit of an outcry because Brown University opted to drop its track team, men's track team among 11 different programs, which is a pretty significant change for even for an Ivy League program that has um, you know dozens of athletic programs and concerns about racial diversity raised there. And I've been seeing an interesting conversation on Twitter going on around that. But yes, golf teams, tennis teams, swim programs, um, all of these have been on the, um, the chopping block at different points over time. I can think back to the 1980s and early 80s when colleges faced the recession of those days, and that led to a bunch of sport cuts. And that was even before Title IX was in force. And so I think you're naturally going to see a lot of those sports cut, which always kind of gets stuck in my crawl a little bit because those are the athletes who are there ostensibly for the reasons that we do athletics and higher ed anyway, right? They're there for the love of the game to compete, to learn the lessons the sport teaches. Football and men's basketball, the revenue sports generally aren't touched, even when some of their practices seem a little dubious, like staying in hotels the night before home games and things like that. And so I think that that is going to be a big factor, especially for those schools that are trying to play at the highest level, but don't have access to the 9,000 seat stadiums and the massive TV deals that the Big Ten, the Pac-12, the ACC, the SEC all have. We're going to take a quick break now. Please stick with us. We've got more to come. Does Inside Higher Ed's wide-ranging coronavirus coverage help you stay informed? Show your support by becoming an insider, our membership program, and enjoy special benefits and offers. Your support helps us continue our journalism and free access to all of our daily news and opinions. To learn more and join, please visit www.insidehighered.com backslash membership. You know, I want to go back to the Brown decision. Brown's found itself in the news a lot these days with the pandemic. Um, you know, when Appalachian State or uh, I think it was ECU cut a few sports, they cited uh, the state budget, the, the severe revenue budget picture they face right now. Can you talk a little bit about what went into Brown's decision and, and whether that is indicative of other uh, others will, may follow? I will tell you, I don't have any inside information there, but what it appears is the way Brown is spinning this as focusing its resources on a smaller number of sports in which they can be competitive. So for example, skiing was another sport that they got rid of. And I'm perfectly willing to believe you can't ski very well in Providence um, during the winter. Uh, having said that, you know, cutting track seems a little harder to explain and to get at because it's the cheapest sport. And, you know, in the interests of full disclosure, I was a Division three track athlete, so the sport has a special place in my heart. But it did seem like an odd choice among those. And so 
you know, within the IVs, I'm sure they have the resources to continue. And I would love to have a conversation with the AD about how they reach those decisions and why it is they think they're going to be more competitive in the sports that they chose moving forward. But given that they got rid of several core sports that all the other Ivy League schools have, it did seem like a very strange decision. Uh, apologies for asking such broad questions. It seems yeah. inescapable in, in uh, these days. Um, but, you know, it feels like a long time ago now, uh, college athletics, to some extent, in an unflattering light around the varsity blues scandal. Um, we know that uh, a, there's quite a bit of recruiting of students to participate in sports who can pay full freight. It may, may in some cases be sought after because of that. Let's put it that way. Given all that's going on, uh, from the pandemic to to the unrest over racism in society, do you see potentially big shifts in how uh, colleges do uh, those sort of athletics programs? And, and are there any kind of best practices out there that you might point to to, to uh, where institutions have diversified their teams in, in ways that that others should look at? So to sort of break those issues apart a little bit, you know, it's important to notice that or to note that with something like the varsity blue scandal, that's going to affect only that handful of schools that are highly, highly, highly selective, where those admission slots are so valued because they're accepting 4%, 5%, 10% of their applicants. Those schools, particularly the Ivies and the New England Small College Athletic Conference, um, the Williamses and the Amherst and so on and so forth, have very specific systems set up to sort of evaluate athletes for admission. So that process you know, involves basically allowing each team to have a certain number of tips. Could that change? It's possible. I mean, I think probably what a lot of colleges are looking at is what might be coming down the road with the uh, drop off in the overall enrollment population, the fact that that's supposed to crater in the next few years, and especially for white students. And so I think that creates a really interesting opportunity for schools to diversify. I think some colleges are, um, when we were talking before, you brought up the example of Amherst and story in the Times um, about how they've been trying to make their athletic program as diverse as the rest of the student body. I will say that there are a lot of yeah, there's a very diverse population, let's just say that, coming out of the state of Georgia. So I would recommend people come, you know, give a second look to some student athletes that are at high schools around here. But I think it does offer us a chance to take a step back and say, okay, what is the value of athletics? What does participating in sports for two or three or four years mean? for a student athlete? How can we evaluate the quality of experience for an athlete at Agnes Scott College in Atlanta versus one from, uh, say, Denison University in Ohio or so on and so forth? How can we think about making those opportunities as good as they can possibly be? And for some schools, that may mean having to cut back on rosters or cutting back on sports when they can't offer that same quality of opportunity where you can learn the things that sport really does teach, you know, teamwork and perseverance and leadership and being willing to sacrifice yourself and being willing to work as part of the team. You know, those are really important life lessons. I think most all coaches and most athletes would tell you that that's a big part of participating in sports. It's an incredible educational experience, but we don't ever evaluate that or talk about how to quantify or qualify those experiences so we can evaluate them one versus another. And I think that's the great opportunity for schools as we head into even more uncertainty. All really good points. And I feel like it, 
the pandemic is obviously something that nobody wanted to live through, but it does give us the chance to take a step back. It does seem to expose the true nature of everything uh, in a lot of ways that we, we, we haven't actually had access to. So it'd be interesting to see if if college athletics does have that reflection on its true purpose. Um, let's let's go back to the, the big money sports for, for a minute. Obviously, as, as you pointed out earlier, uh, it is showtime for college football. Things are going to have to start happening really soon, one way or another. How long before you think we have some sense of what the fall will, will bring in terms of uh, watching football on Saturdays? I think there's going to have to be some sort of main decision made by July 1 just in order to have people on campus to be able to practice, to get ready to play, just from a safety standpoint, as much as anything. As you know, Paul, college sports, whatever sport you're doing, it's a year-round thing. I have, I have volleyball players in my classes this spring who are already you know, doing their workouts and having to schedule classes around workouts, even though it's a fall sport. So I think that we're going to have to know something about that and probably shortly thereafter know something about how stadiums are going to be set up. And then still, I think there are a lot of outstanding questions. Are colleges going to be willing to bring in teams, you know, the cannon fodder games, as they're sometimes called, the non-conference games where you play a much, pay a much smaller college a lot of money to come play your team in your big stadium so you can make those money? Are you going to be willing to bring someone, say, from University of Texas, El Paso, or uh, the University of Massachusetts or someplace out of your region to come to your stadium when you don't know what their propensity for bringing fans or bringing the virus might be? That's one thing I've heard out of the Pac-12 is they may come up with a rule saying that um, Olympic sports can't travel more than 400 miles from their home campus. So it basically, uh, you know, limits you to bus trips and things like that. So I think all those things are going to need to be decided so that schedules can be confirmed pretty quickly. And then of course, you know, from a fan standpoint, A, what is the regular season and the playoff going to look like? And B, what are stadiums going to look like? You know, when you, it's just a logistical nightmare. As you describe this, I, I can't even, it's like every, every point you make opens up 20 new questions. Uh, and I, I, so I don't envy anyone trying to figure out uh, what to do with college athletics right now. You know, I was reading about the NBA looking at playing in one area, having 22 teams, a really just radically different uh, half season. Is it possible that we might see something really radically different at this point where conferences might just play each other or, you know, when you, you mentioned this, the variables of teams traveling teams that have different protocols, it seems like we might have to go to something where it'd be a more controlled situation. I, I know I promised I wouldn't ask you to speculate. <laughs> Are radical solutions a possibility at this point? So yes, there's certainly a possibility. Uh, I don't have enough inside information about what's actually being talked about, but the couple of things that I have heard kicked around are yes, basically eliminating non-conference games, even in football in some cases. There's some contingency planning going on for a game that would involve, I think, UCLA and Texas A&M and what that might look like if that got called off in some way, shape, or form. The other thing I've heard kicked around for uh, non-revenue sports is having that kind of bubble exactly like you described, like the NBA is talking about doing in Orlando, where you might bring all the, say, volleyball teams in a conference together for round-robin tournaments over a couple of weekends or something like that. 
So I think you could see things happen like that. I think we definitely can assume that the fall season is going to be very, very weird. And then, of course, all bets are off because so many colleges have been talking about ending semesters at Thanksgiving or something like that. Is that going to start interfering with winter sports? Is that going to cause changes to the basketball schedule, knowing that, you know, the end of basketball was wiped out last year because of this anyways? You know, I think the prediction of a very weird fall is a prediction we can all get behind. Welch, thanks so much for sharing your expertise on this, on such difficult questions in a difficult time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great to be with you, Paul. And uh, for, for our listeners, it's good to, to speak to a former colleague. Uh, Welch and I worked at the Chronicle of Higher Education back in the day as well. Back in the day. Well, good to see you. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. That's it for another episode of The Key. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Right now, I'm coming at you from my tool shed in my backyard. It's hard to say where I'll be next week, but I will have an episode, and I hope you'll join me. Thanks again. This episode is sponsored by the ECMC Foundation, which supports building a post-secondary education system that works for all learners through its grant-making focus areas of college success and career readiness. 